ask you to open your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and read with me verses 15 through 21. Beginning in verse 15, we read, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Last week we looked at verse 17. And we saw there the responsibility we have as Christians to discern the will of the Lord or the will of Christ. We looked at this in the individual aspect that we have as individual Christians and also in the corporate aspect where we as a church, as a body, have the responsibility to discern the will of Christ We also looked in the general of how we as individual Christians discern the general will of God for us to be sanctified, to be saved, sanctified, spirit-filled, to suffer. Those types of things are the general will of Christ for every believer. And then more particularly, how we discern the will of Christ for our lives. Today we're going to move on and look at verse 18 specifically, and as we do so, I want to bring something to your attention that I hope will be helpful as we consider not only these verses, but every time you come to the scriptures, knowing that they are the very word of God, inspired of him, breathed out what God has said to us as his people, living and active. In my own devotional reading last week, It seems like I kept coming across things that dealt with the conscience. The conscience is a great mercy and gift of God to us as individual Christians. And even to those who are unsaved. The conscience is used of God to innately give us a sense of right and wrong. To bring conviction. To bring guilt. And seek and cause us to seek a remedy, driving us, as it were, to Christ. Conscience is a gift. Martin Luther, you know these words. He said it's never safe to go against your conscience. What he means there, if the Lord has awakened you and has smitten your conscience over some part of the Christian life, or perhaps you're an unbeliever, and have a smitten conscience about professing the name of Christ and coming and making your profession of that faith public. The Lord uses our conscience, awakened by His Spirit, to do these things. The illustration that I ran across this week that really pictured this for me well in my own heart was written by William J. I'm going to give him credit for this, but he relates the conscience in the working of the conscience, either in the Christian or the non-Christian, 
he says something like this. Think of your conscience as being a serpent or a snake. What happens in the cold winter months for serpents and snakes? What do they do? They go underground. They become lethargic. They hibernate. You don't have to usually worry in the months of December, January, or February, at least here, that you're going to turn something over and find a snake there and be bitten, right? The illustration that he uses says that's your conscience as it is detached from the means of the Word of God. But when you subject yourself, or when the Lord subjects you to the truth of Scripture, it's like your conscience is being heated, it's being warmed. It's coming to life. It's bringing conviction of the Spirit. It's bringing conviction that is birthed there by the truth of the Word being attested to by the Spirit of Christ in your heart. This is when the conscience begins to bite and to gnaw at you. And this is represented, I think, every time we come into the worship of God. And I'm going to, this is just a bit of my own experience as, as a young Christian and even various times throughout my Christian life. There is an issue that's before me, whether it's an issue of repentance whether it's an issue of making something right with a brother offended. The issue could be various. But it seems to be the Lord in particular puts His hand or finger on it when you come and submit yourselves to the Scripture. How many of you have ever felt a burning sense of conviction in a service of worship where the Word of God is being preached or perhaps even in your own home where you are meditating upon the Scripture and there is a burning sense of conviction. It's like your conscience is being warmed and it's biting and gnawing at you. But when you close your Bible or when you depart the meeting of the saints, what happens? The coolness comes and that serpent goes back to sleep. And that moment of being brought either to Christ initially or to an ongoing repentance before him passes. There's real danger in that. There's real danger in not responding to the promptings of the Lord when they come. And the real danger can really be expressed along two lines. One of the wiles of Satan is to impress upon you that there will be another opportunity. That there will be another opportunity, a more opportune time, a more convenient time, a time when you won't quite have to humble yourself as much or perhaps bring as much attention to yourself to respond to the promptings of God as He works through the Word by His Spirit to burden or convict you. So that's the first danger, is buying the lie of the devil that opportunity will come again. Because it may not. The second, I guess closely associated to this, is that even if you are physically submitted again to the Word of God in some way, there is no guarantee that God is going to mercy you and bring conviction to your conscience again. You may sit the rest of your life under the preaching of the Word. You may read the Scriptures the rest of your life, and there may never be this move of God upon you 
convicting you and leading you to act, to repent, or to come to Christ. To me, that is really a frightening prospect, isn't it? To go through the motions of Christianity, to have a form of godliness but no power, to worship Christ in vain. Those are the words of Christ as he speaks to the Pharisees in his own day. You worship me in self-righteousness, and he says it's all unto vanity. He receives no pleasure in it. He receives no glory in it. And so if the Lord in grace and mercy today or this week or sometime soon were to so work in your heart and life using the means of God, prayer, meditation, scripture reading, perhaps it's observing the ordinance of baptism, If the Lord convicts you of something, let me encourage you to act upon it. Don't ignore the tenderness of your conscience. It's a tremendously merciful gift of God. And so we've read these verses that we're looking at here in verses 15 through 21. I want to look particularly at verse 18, which has as its main subject being filled with the Spirit. So let me read that verse again. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to your word. We're asking you to use it in our lives for good. Lord, we confess that this, that this is the very word of God, inspired, breathed out by you, and presented to us. We ask you to use it in our lives this morning, prompting us to bring Christ glory in our fellowship in the word. We ask it in his name for his sake. Amen. Verse 18 contains two parts. There is a prohibition and then there is a command. It breaks itself nicely right In half. The prohibition is do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. And then the positive ongoing command is to be filled with the Spirit. And we have to deal with this verse as a whole. That's the way Paul wrote it, that's the way the Spirit inspired it. We should not take the first half of verse 18 in isolation. To do that is to err and miss the point. The primary issue, and please listen carefully, this next few minutes of the things that I'm going to say, if you're not listening carefully, you may think that I'm being too soft or too harsh or somewhere in between. So please listen carefully. The primary issue at hand in verse 18 is not the negative prohibition of drinking in excess or unto drunkenness. The primary issue, when you look at verse 18 and you plunge it right back into its context, the primary issue here is to be filled with the Spirit. The first half of verse 18 is setting the stage for what Paul is saying in the second half of being filled with the Spirit. 
the primary issue here at hand is what is to be the controlling, driving force, if you will, in the Christian's life. Christians are to be under the influence and control of the Spirit. Now, let's bring some balance to this. While the prohibition of drinking unto drunkenness is not Paul's primary concern, it's certainly here, and we have to deal with it. It's secondary, but important. It is an expression of the will of God that the Christian will not drink to excess, to drunkenness, to dissipation, to debauchery. Many of those words are used in the various translations that we have. And to prove the point that I'm trying to make, let me appeal to Martin Lloyd-Jones and his commentary on these verses. He says this, We can dismiss immediately any notion that Paul is merely dealing with the question of drunkenness and excessive drinking here. For anyone to use this verse merely as a text for what I call a temperance sermon is to show a complete misunderstanding of the verse. And so what he's saying there, if all we do is open our Bible, pull out the words of the first half of verse 18, and then use them and rail against drunkenness, then we have missed the complete point of what Paul is saying in verse 18. There's much more there. Now, that said, we have a litany of verses, a multitude of verses that warn the Christian about drinking in excess. And we can say very clearly, we're, we remember in verse 17, we're trying to discern the will of the Lord. We can say very clearly, very distinctly, that drinking in excess unto drunkenness is not ever the will of Christ for the redeemed of God. So let's be clear and state that as clearly as we can. So when we consider this 18th verse, the first thing that we have to do is deal with this negative prohibition, keeping it set in the context of the larger command to be fill, filled with the Spirit. So I just have two points. The negative prohibition and then the positive command. And we're going to go in that order. First of all, look with me again at the 18th verse. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Let's start with the obvious and easy thing here in verse 18. This is a command to obey. Christian, this is a command for you to submit to joyfully unto your Lord who has redeemed you. The prohibition has to do with drunkenness. We're going to talk more about this word that is used here, dissipation or excess. That's an important point to make. If we're dealing honestly with the scriptures, the prohibition is against drunkenness, dissipation. Moderate drinking of alcohol, whatever your position is, moderate drinking in and of itself, biblically speaking, isn't sinful. Now, I realize the culture we live in, I'm going to talk about this later, so don't tune me out just yet. 
the moderate drinking of alcohol is not what is in view here. It's the excess. It's the dissipation. Those acts that are performed in drunkenness. So a couple of things to bring to this discussion that I think are helpful. Things that we need to understand. Self-control is the key to moderation in any aspect of the Christian life. So it's no wonder that we're told in Galatians chapter 5 that one of the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a Christian is indeed self-control. The ability fostered and cultivated in you by Christ to control your actions. And this applies to every area of life. As a Christian, you are to control yourself. We've already seen in these same verses that we're told as Christians not to fly into a rage. Not to be given to outbursts of wrath or outbursts of anger. Those things are fruit of the natural man. The man in whom there is no spirit of Christ. You see all of these things that we've dealt with in past weeks, things which we are told to put off or to put away, things of which we're told it's shameful even to speak of. So I'm going to follow this up by saying, though self-control is the key to moderation, and if moderation itself is a struggle, then the answer is in your life abstinence, total. But yet again, we're bringing other principles from the Scriptures to this 18th verse when we make a statement like that. We need to also understand that drinking to any degree can be a peculiar vice for some Christians and it is to be avoided by those that have been saved out of a lifestyle of drunkenness and addiction. There's wisdom there, right? If your previous life was a life of drunkenness and addiction and that type of thing, then the wisdom that we need to bring to a passage like this is that we need to stay away. How many testimonies have you heard of Christians saved out of something like this and yet after hearing a sermon on Christian liberty or moderation they go back into that and fall completely back into the life that they were once described as. For some, this issue is an issue of conscience. It's an issue of Christian liberty. Anytime we begin to think about Christian liberty, the proof text or case in point text that we need to turn to is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. There is a principle here that we gain from in this area of liberty. And it's interesting, when you think of Paul and everything that he wrote about Christian liberty, most often Paul is saying how he is going to limit himself and his liberties, not how he is going to take advantage of his liberties. I'll challenge you, do a study on the New Testament of any any area where Paul is writing about his liberty as a Christian, and most often what you're going to find is Paul saying things like, I know this is, quote, legal for me as a Christian, but if there is even a hint or a chance that my brother is going to be made to stumble, 
then I will not partake. Let me read you this chapter, 1 Corinthians 8. It's short, so I'm going to read the whole chapter. Please listen to what Paul says in the principle contained here. He says, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols. So let's stop there and just kind of set the stage. In Paul's day, there were many, especially in Ephesus, the, the, um, the book that we've been studying for some time now, a lot of idol worship, the way these idols were worshipped, meat, animals were brought, sacrificed to these idols just as under the law of God, animals were brought and sacrificed to him. Then the issue is what will happen with this meat that has been sacrificed or offered to this idol? Can I eat it or can I not? So Paul deals with that. He says, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. So what is Paul saying there? An idol is nothing. They have mouths, but they don't speak, eyes, but they don't see, ears, but they don't hear. They are man's creation and therefore nothing in the world. There is no God but one under heaven. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or, or on earth, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Get down to verse 7. Paul says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. There seems to be the inability in the mind and the heart of some to distinguish and separate that this is nothing more than meat. Some get hung up there by a scruple. This is what the New Testament calls the scruple. And they cannot detach the actual thing before them from the supposed idol that it was sacrificed to. And Paul says, there are some that have not this knowledge and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God for we neither, for neither if we eat are we the better in God's sight, nor if we do not eat are we the worse in God's sight. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren... When you sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Again, this is 1 Corinthians 8. That verse was verse 12. And this is the end of, of what Paul says. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul understood Christian liberty better than any of us. 
He was used by the Spirit to write not only in 1 Corinthians 8, but other places about the liberties we have as Christians. And as I've already said, most often what he does is limit himself. Not expand his actions based on liberty, but limits himself because of the weaker brethren. Now here is an issue. You can study this, the scruples of the weak and the weaker brethren. Some Christians say, my Lord is Christ, and I am not going to be bound by the weaker brother whose conscience is weak. Can I remind you of what we just read? If you sin against that weak brother, you've sinned against Christ. If you have blatantly held something in their face, knowingly knowing that their conscience is weak in this area, then you've sinned against them and you've sinned against Christ. That's Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, not mine. He says, when you sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. We study this whole thing because this principle applies not only to meat offered to idols. That's not an issue in our day. I've never seen anyone sit down to eat a piece of meat that has been offered to an idol. But there are any other number of ways that we can offend or wound one another's consciences before the Lord. And the issue at hand today in verse 18 of Ephesians 5 is certainly one of them. It is immoderation, dissipation, excess that is clearly sinful and not the will of Christ. Here are those two points. Moderate, self-controlled drinking is not the issue in verse 18. It may be very unwise for you, but that's not the issue. It's immoderation and drunkenness. The word is dissipation or excess. Let me give you three definitions of the word dissipation. It's not a word that we use in everyday conversation. So it's something that I think needs to be expand it a little bit and help and cause us to to understand exactly what Paul is saying. First, Ian Hamilton defines the word as a wild, dissolute, uncontrolled behavior, a lifestyle that is marked by self-indulgence. So there's one definition. The second, Sinclair Ferguson says, Dissipation is a giving way to uncontrolled passions which the sober-minded are able to keep in place. And then thirdly, Jeffrey Wilson. Dissipation is revelry, debauchery, riot. Whatever tends to destruction is all bound up in this word. Therefore, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. You've all heard the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I, right? We've all heard that. I want to use this illustration not flippantly, not arrogantly, not in a put-down sort of way. Yesterday, I had a there but for the grace of God go I moment. Rex, Steve, and I were privileged to be able to go into the prison in New Boston 
and to preach the scriptures. And I was thinking of these verses in my heart and mind. In preaching to those men, I couldn't help but wonder how many of them are here now because of something they did while drunk or under the influence of some drug. And it's so humbling that you just have to stop and say, there but for the grace of God, I would be. And I bring that illustration to the, to the point to say, some of these men that we spoke with yesterday, very mature-minded Christians. I had great conversation, I think Rex and Steve would agree, great conversation with many of them about the deep things of God. No surface talk going on here. Very mature-minded men, but yet in a moment of dissipation for many of them. Some of them perhaps even totally acting out of character in that moment of dissipation. Their lives were forever affected. Brethren, that's the danger. That's the danger of what Paul is getting at here. Curtis Vaughn says, Carnal intoxication always leads to ruin. You may get by with it for a while, for years. But in the end, some way or another, it's going to catch up with you. The bottom line is those that are intoxicated do things, say things that they otherwise would not do. It is the very opposite of self-control. It is to be out of control. It affects the way you parent your children. It affects your responsibilities as a husband. It affects your responsibilities as a wife. It, it affects your responsibility as a member of Christ's church. It affects your responsibilities as the redeemed of God. This is not something that we as professing Christians should entertain and play with in life because it will at some point or another, because of the very nature of the thing that it is, it will affect you to some degree and bring consequence into your life. Perhaps these words sum it up well. John MacArthur, intoxication is never a remedy for the cares of life, but it has few equals in its ability to multiply them. You hear what he said? It's never a remedy for the cares of life. It will only exacerbate the cares of life. William Henderson says, Intoxication is not an effective remedy for the cares and worries of life. The so-called uplift it provides is not real. It is the devil's poor substitute for the joy unspeakable and full of glory which God alone provides. The devil's poor substitute. How are we to think about this issue of drinking in Scripture? Well, at one place it's commended by Paul to Timothy. Timothy, apparently a sickly person, Paul says, drink a bit of wine for your stomach's sake. Most understand that wine was made available as a sanitary option when clean water was not, not available. 
And we may say many other things about it in that realm, but never, not even once, is it hinted at in the Scriptures to be a God-ordained coping mechanism for the Christian who is undergoing the cares and the burdens of life. Not one time will you find it presented as a way to cope with life. What you will find over and over and over again are calls like this by Christ. Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can't deny the fact that the cares and the burdens of life sometimes press and squeeze upon us so hard that we get to the point of just feeling so stressed. Brethren, what do you do? As a Christian, you have one option. Crawl on your knees to Christ. Beg Him for help. We're never told in Scripture to turn somewhere else. We are given a Spirit, the Spirit of Christ Himself, which is called in the Scriptures our Helper, who comes alongside of us. We're told to cast our cares and burdens upon the Lord, knowing that He cares for us. You'll find no biblical support, no warrant, no license in Scripture to turn to anything other than Christ to help you in dealing with the stress or the cares of life. If that's the justification in your own mind, you've bought the lie of the devil. You've accepted the devil's poor substitute, the mind-numbing poor substitute of coming with an alive conscience and in faith to Christ again, pouring your soul out before Him and asking Him for help. Now, there's one thing that I have intentionally avoided in this whole conversation that I want to speak to quickly and that is the discussion of the type or the strength of the wine in the New Testament. And you can find truckloads and volumes written on this. Two things that I would say about this in conclusion to this whole first point. The first miracle that Christ performed was turning water into wine. Do you remember that? what was said? <laughs> Man, you've set the inferior stuff out first. This is the good stuff. The water Christ turned into wine was the, quote, good. Apparently, the wine that was available to those in Ephesus could have the end effect of intoxication. And I think that fits for all of the wine available in the New Testament. This is the secondary thing in the text. The prohibition against excessive use of drink, wine, alcohol, whatever you want to call it in our day. It is an issue for us to note and submit to in obedience, desiring to bring honor and glory to Christ. And it is that for which Paul uses to set the stage for the primary teaching of the passage, and that is to be filled with the Spirit. So that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. We've noted the command of, of the first part of verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. We've defined dissipation. We've talked about the effects and the consequences of dissipation. But what about the positive part of this? 
if a Christian is not to be under the influence of drink or some other outside thing, what is he or she to be under the influence of? What is directing and guiding and leading them? It's the Spirit. We're told here to be filled with the Spirit. Notice the simplicity of verse 18. But be filled with the Spirit. Something that I want to say here at the outset, Paul mentions nothing about a, quote, experience of being filled with the Spirit. His concern has everything to do with the evidence of being filled with the Spirit. The evidence being, Lord willing, we'll see next week, the speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks in the name of Christ for everything in life and submitting to one another in the fear of God. So can we agree at the outset of our consideration of this second half of verse 18, being filled with the Spirit is not an experience but a lifestyle to cultivate. As Christians, we're not waiting to be slain in the Spirit. We're not waiting for some vision to to appear or something to, to overtake us. I realize you see that. Most everywhere you turn on social media or some media this day will depict to you, if you're filled with the Spirit, there is going to be some experience by which you now know you're filled with the Spirit. You're going to speak in tongues. You're going to have uncontrollable laughter. Your body is going to be subject to, you know, uncontrollable activity. And that list goes on and on and on as the, quote, experience that now you know you've been filled with the Spirit. All of that, brethren, is blasphemy. To be filled with the Spirit is to submit your life to Christ every hour of every day, not grieving Him, not grieving the Spirit, but cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in your life. This is, the Spirit-filled life is the normal life of the Christian. This is not the extraordinary This is what should be normal for every believer is to be filled with the Spirit and be enabled to perform those one another activities, those expressions of love that the New Testament calls us to perform one to another. And I think we can make this equation. Physical drunkenness bears fruit, right? Dissipation and consequence Being filled with the Spirit also bears fruit. It also leads to certain activities. And another thing, this command to be filled with the Spirit is given to Christians who already have the Spirit. We can go back to first chapter in the third verse where we're told there that Paul is writing to the, excuse me, the first verse, the saints who are in Ephesus. A saint is someone who has been brought to faith in Christ, expressed faith in Christ. Their sins are covered. The righteousness of Christ is given them. We're taught in the scripture that we are then at that very moment sealed by the Spirit of God, given the Spirit. It's not a secondary experience. It's not a higher life. The Spirit comes 
at the moment of salvation into your life and is then to be welcomed, not grieved, not quenched. But your life is to be about those types of things that cultivate His presence. I think we find some help here in Colossians chapter 3. You know that Ephesians and Colossians are parallels, right? If you were to outline them, you'd have the same basic outline. Most often, Ephesians is the expansion of that outline. If you have a, a major point, Ephesians gives you more subpoints. This is the exception. Colossians greatly expands upon what Paul says here in a few words in Ephesians. Would you turn back with would you turn with me to Colossians chapter three? I'm going to read a few verses here just so you can get the feel and the sense of the parallel. In verse 12 of Colossians 3, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. But above all of these things, put on love. Paul told us in Ephesians 5, the context of verse 18, walk in love which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then immediately he begins to address the wives, the husbands, the children. If you go back and glance at Ephesians 5, you'll note that they are almost mirror. And so let's look at Colossians chapter 3 to see how Paul expands there on what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Notice he says here, again, Colossians 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in hymns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let me read the, par the Ephesian parallel. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Mirror passages, right? So it's not, we're not in error to apply the hermeneutic here of interpreting Scripture, that Scripture interprets Scripture and to see that the equation that Paul makes as we compare these two, to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, equates to and is the same thing as letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. How are you filled with the Spirit anyway? Do you sit passively by just waiting on the Spirit of God to zap you and give you some experience that now that you can say, oh, I'm filled with the Spirit? That's the way many people interpret it. They're waiting upon some extraordinary event in their life to happen so that they can say, now I'm filled with the Spirit. Well, let's be honest with the text. 
Colossians chapter 3, the first word of that is let. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. This is what's called the passive voice. I don't want to give you too much information, but there is passivity here. But it is passivity through the disciplined use of means. Please connect those dots. Now, I've said this phrase before. You've said this phrase before, but let's call it out on the carpet, all right? Let go and let God. What does that even mean? What does it even mean? Nowhere in the scriptures are you called to let go of anything. You're called to hold fast to Christ, cling to Christ. You be disciplined for the purpose of godliness. So when we read the word let here, even though it is a passive voice, it is something that we must to some degree allow. It is something that we allow through disciplined use of means. How else is, are we to let the word of Christ dwell? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Does that mean that you just wait for the word of Christ to dwell in you? No, it means that through disciplined use, through prayer, through reading, through meditating upon the scripture, through memorizing it, hiding it in your heart, then through those means, the word of Christ is going to dwell in you richly. The word let doesn't mean sit on your hands. It means be about those things that's going to cultivate the word of Christ dwelling in your heart. So apply that to be filled with the spirit. Be about those things that are going to produce in the end the filling of the Spirit. If you're serious-minded about being filled with the Spirit, you're going to read your Bible, you're going to pray, you're going to fellowship with the saints, you're going to attend the meetings of the body, you're going to do all of those things that have their end of pleasing God, pleasing Christ, and then in the end what you can say is that, yes, I'm filled with the Spirit. The Lord is producing in me those things that agree with the Spirit of God. Notice the outcome in Ephesians and Colossians is the same. The thing that immediately follows both, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is what it means, at least in part, to be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18, first half, prohibition against immoderate drinking that leads to drunkenness, that leads to you acting anything but like you. Second half, be filled with the Spirit. An intoxication of the Spirit that leads you into walking in step with the Spirit. Cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. Living in light of the Word of Christ as He makes it known. The first and second half, the first half and the second half of verse 18 are diametrically opposed. And I think Paul does that intentionally. 
The first half is dissipation. The second half is blessing. The first half brings Christ no glory. The second half brings Christ all glory. The first half is injurious to you. It's injurious to Christ. The second half is all blessing to you and all glory to Christ. You can run that list through your head just any way that you want to set these in direct opposition to one another. Just keep going with it. Everything, I think, would apply. So in conclusion... Our responsibility before God is to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled, guided, directed by Him, to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly through the disciplined use of means, have the Scriptures dictate to us. Now, in reality, what does that look like? What does that look like in reality? Well, I think I would answer that question by making an, an appeal to this word dissipation again. Into that illustration that I gave you earlier. There's a choice here to make. Self-indulgence, spirit leading. Lack of control, self-control. Honoring the Lord, dishonoring the Lord. That's what's set before us. That's the gravity of the 18th verse. I pray that you will take it as it comes here. No doubt there are more things that I could have said. Could have come down harder on this point or that point perhaps. But the issue remains. What is in view in verse 18 is that you and I as Christians cultivate the filling of the Spirit. Everything that follows in Ephesians 5 and 6 depends upon being filled with the Spirit. You, wife, will not submit to your husbands as to the Lord if you're not filled with the Spirit. Everything in your flesh is going to appeal to you to do otherwise. Husband, you are not going to love your wife as Christ loved the church unless you were filled with the Spirit. Everything in your natural tendency is going to be to lord over her or some other type of thing, be abusive either mentally, verbally, children, you too are called to be filled with the Spirit. In obeying your parents in the Lord, for this is right, unless you children are filled with the Spirit, this will not happen. Everything in your natural tendency is going to cause you to want to rebel in some way or another or dishonor your parents through disobedience. So you see what's at stake. This is not just a matter of railing against drunkenness. That's easy. 
We could have taken the first half of verse 18 and just left it alone in isolation and just railed and railed and railed against drunkenness and the society of, inter- of entertainment drinking that has prevailed. That would have been easy. To see it in its context as being a secondary yet important, setting the stage for the large, larger, more important Principle, something altogether different. You must be filled with the Spirit. You must use those things that God has given you to cultivate it and bear the fruit of the remaining part of the book of Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, our desire, even if we express it poorly, Our desire is that the word of Christ dwell in us richly, in all wisdom. Lord, our desire is to be filled with the Spirit. Teach us even more what that means. Not to be passive, but to be active in those things which are used by the Spirit to fill us. Lord, there's some mystery here in our hearts and minds. And we need you, the spirit of truth, to come alongside of us and make clear and plain the way in which we are to walk. Lord, help us as Christians, those who profess faith in Christ, those who are striving to walk in light of the gospel, to be wise in the decisions that we make. Help us to be wise in this issue of Christian liberty, Lord, in no thing do we want to bring disgrace or harm upon the name or cause of Jesus Christ. Lord, in no way do we want to make a brother stumble, a sister to stumble, by our exercising of supposed liberties. Help us to be bound to Christ and to his honor and to his glory. We pray and ask it in his name. Amen.